Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Good morning, everybody. There we go. Beautiful. Everybody says good morning back. Well, uh, thanks, Matt. He's gone now. Thank you, Matt, (laughs) for reading for us this morning. Um, I can personally attest to Matt and Kendra's uh, influence in my own life, as well as the students here. Um, They have been a blessing for as long as they've been at this church, so thank you guys so much um, for that. Uh, As you've seen, we're taking a quick break this morning from our study in the book of Mark. And we're going to jump into the book of Romans today. Now, before I I really dive into the text, I want to welcome everybody here, especially first-time guests. I'm not typically up here giving the message. You're typically going to hear me singing. Uh, So sorry, I guess, for that. (laughs) Uh, But my name is Hunter Fustel. I've served on the worship team as well as in the student ministry uh, for many years now. Uh, Pastors Raleigh and Brian, as well as the elders, asked me to preach this morning. Uh, for our quarterly student weekend celebration, which seems fitting because I am both a product of the student ministry here, as well as now uh, blessed to be one of the leaders. So uh, some of you might be asking, why Romans? Uh, Well, right now in our Wednesday Night Thrive student ministry uh, study, we are going through the book of Romans. Right now we're in Romans chapter 6, or we're about to be in Romans chapter 6. But uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, so all the students pay attention, so that way when I'm teaching, when we get there, I don't have just blank responses when I ask questions. (laughs) I would appreciate that. Now, Romans is a deeply theological letter written by Paul. It's nestled right uh, towards the front of the New Testament after the Gospels and the book of Acts. Uh, Before we dive into chapter 12 specifically, I would like to give an introduction to the book as a whole for those of us who maybe haven't studied it and don't have it in our recent memory. First, we can look at the literary makeup. So Romans is a Pauline epistle or a letter written by Paul, right? That's the fancy church word for letter, epistle, if you ever hear that, epistle, right? Um, Anyways, so to the church in Rome, it's believed that the book is written sometimes. I had a really funny saying for epistle. Students, some of the students might, they don't remember it. Yes, you remember I made a joke about that? Oh, yes. Okay, some things stick with them. Anyways, nothing to do with the message, right? Uh, It's believed that the book was written sometime between uh, 56 and 58 AD. Now, it's clear uh, in reading the book that it serves to provide deep doctrinal insight and instruction into the gospel for believers in Rome. So, the author is Paul, right? The, The date and then the purpose to provide deep doctrinal insight. Now, before we continue, I would ask the question when somebody uses, I always like to explain church words. You could tell that I teach student ministry because every time I come upon a church word, I'm always like, okay, what does that actually mean? Because as a student, people would say things like doctrine. I'd be like, okay, but I had no idea what they meant, right? So what is doctrine? Doctrine can be succinctly described as a principle or position or the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or a system of belief. So, for instance, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. And there's like the three main tenets to that that we hold to as a church body. Now, across the different denominations within the Protestant church, as well as across Protestantism and Catholicism, there are different uh, doctrines that each one holds, hence the spreading of the denominations. But when I use the term doctrine 
or for instance, the doctrine of grace. I'm talking about the, the principles or the position of our church when it comes to the grace received from Christ's work on the cross. So Paul was trying to explain the principles and the truths of the gospel to believers in Rome. The Roman church at the time of his writing this letter had not received any apostolic instruction as a whole. Unlike some of his other letters where Paul is attempting to rebuke or um, correct aberrant teaching, the, the book of Romans is not intended to correct something as much as it is intended to uh, uphold and kind of um, give a baseline to the Roman church in, the, in terms of instruction of the gospel of grace to, to the believers there. And there's an emphasis, a specific emphasis on the truth that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Paul's letter to the Romans is broken up into what I consider a logical, cohesive framework. Now, I am an engineer by trade, so like logic and like zeros and ones, that's how I think about things. So when I read Paul's letters, I love them because it's very much like he explains something and then if you think you'd have a question to what he just said, he's like, I'm going to answer that question before you even ask it. And I love that about uh, specifically the book of Romans. And so this cohesive framework, I think, can be kind of broken into a high-level outline. Some of you may see more specific outlines out there. But for, this, for the purposes of this message, we can break it into two parts. The first part is Romans 1 through 11, where Paul outlines the justification by faith. So he presents the logical argument for justification by faith. And then in Romans 12, 15, or Romans 12 through 15, he presents the transformed life. And really what he's doing is he presents Justification by faith, and then he turns and he says, okay, this is what that means for you, and provides application. This term, justification, is an encompassing term regarding being made right in the eyes of the Lord. The justification of sinners includes a couple of things, but three primary parts. The first being the remission of the penalty of sin. And what is that penalty? It's death. We see that outlined in, earlier in Romans, in Romans 3.23, uh, in Romans 8.1, as well as 1 Peter 2.24. The second part, the restoration of God's favor. This had been lost. God's favor had been lost due to our sin. So justification, this kind of idea of justification, is more than an acquittal, but it is a full acceptance we are actually now friends with God. We were once enemies with God, and Paul outlines that specifically, and now we are friends with God through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. No longer are we viewed as simply not guilty before the heavenly courts, but we walk out of the trial fully vindicated and accepted by the, by the judge as though we had never actually committed the deeds that we had done. So the way I kind of put it is like O.J., if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, right? Some of you, man, I know some of my students I don't use that reference with, but I expected this audience to give me a little something back. But so OJ is like a perfect example for this, right? OJ was acquitted of murder, right? Unless I, I was like one when this happened, so maybe I'm wrong. But OJ was acquitted of murder. But he left, and like everyone was like, he did it, right? That's not a position of the church for those at home. 
before anybody makes any Twitter posts, right? But it's not even Twitter anymore, it's X. But the point is, OJ was acquitted, but he went home and everyone still thought he was guilty. But before, in the eyes of the Lord, justification means we're acquitted, but not only are we proven not guilty in the courtroom, we are now fully vindicated as if we had never even committed the deed. It's like you walk out and everybody's like, that's right, OJ, you didn't do it. You're OJ in this scenario, unfortunately. Okay, but that is ultimately what justification means to us. Now, the third part is the imputation of righteousness which is the reckoning of Christ's righteousness to our account. And that's discussed in Romans chapter 4 specifically. We're declared legally, it's like this legal argument, we're declared legally, that's the whole courtroom-esque, trial-esque discussion here. Legally, we are declared righteous before God. And that leads us to what I want to present as the thematic verses for the book of Romans. It's this, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Now, again, you're like, Hunter, I thought we were in chapter 12. Well, we'll get there. We just need to know what Paul is talking about before we do. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we, as Christ's followers, are to live by faith. It is faith alone that is accounted to us as righteousness. And Paul goes through a beautiful uh, discussion and kind of um, anecdotal evidence in terms of the story of Abraham where he talks about, you know, Abraham, he wasn't righteous after the covenant of circumcision. He was, his faith prior to the covenant of of circumcision was accounted to him as righteousness, Because Jews at the time were like, oh, you know, we're circumcised, we're all good. And then Paul was like, no, that's not how that works. And so this term righteous, really what it means, it's, it's, I'm going to butcher this Greek, so pardon this. Dekaios une, dekanosuye, that was wrong. (laughs) But it means in a broad sense, the condition acceptable to God. We are unacceptable to God in our current state prior to the transformed life. And it is only by the work of Christ on the cross and our submission to him as our Lord that we are made fully righteous and acceptable to God. So in chapters 1 through 11, we see Paul expand upon this truth. He describes its intricacies and provides examples of its application and implications. And then we're plopped now right into chapter 12 where Paul now appeals to the church to live holy and instructs the church how to do so in light of the grace of God and the resurrection of Christ. Before I jump into this text, for those of us here this morning that might not know the truth of what Christ has done for you on the cross, I want to invite you after this message to come talk to myself, talk to Pastor Brian or Raleigh. Now, what I will say is what we read this morning, it sounds really good, And so I would encourage you that if you read what the transformed life looks like and you say, I want that, then come speak to one of us so we can can talk to you about what, what it really means to receive salvation from God. But if you're here this morning and you claim Christ, I think this message is specifically for you. 
And so we begin in verse 1. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul begins chapter 12 with this appeal to his fellow Christians by the mercies of God. To what? To present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God in response to our faith. You see, he begins with this this phrase, I appeal to you, therefore, which really is kind of pulling in all of that he's already talked about. He's saying, therefore, if you have received this grace that we've talked about in all these previous chapters, I appeal to you to live this way. And then he says what? That presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is an act of worship to fully submit ourselves to the Lord. And so I ask this question to you this morning. Do you view your life as a living sacrifice? Do you consider that even to be worship? Do you consider the... Con- Sometimes we'll, we'll be walking around in church and I... I'm guilty of this. I'll be up here on stage and be like, stand with us in worship. And people kind of get this idea that worship is just singing. But worship is not just singing. It is living our lives as sacrifices to God. And this concept of sacrifice, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, right, there was a sacrificial system that was in place. And it's outlined through the Old Testament. It's pretty gruesome if you, if you actually read about it. Where they had to continuously present offerings to God in response to their sin, so that they could be clean in the eyes of God. And ultimately, Christ came to fulfill the law, fulfill the sacrificial system, be a perfect, holy, righteous sacrifice, such that it was one and done. He died for everybody's sins. And if you believe in him, you shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we we should be a mirror to that sacrifice. We should give it all to the Lord. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth as we continue on because Paul kind of like expands on this. Again, I love how Paul writes because it just makes lot. When I was younger, I would read, <laughs> this is funny, this has nothing to do with the message. When I was younger, I would read the Bible and I would be like, the way Paul wrote, I'd be like, this doesn't make sense. There'd be like, anybody ever read the Bible and be like, this phrasing makes no sense because there's like random phrases inter- intermingled. So then I just, as I've gotten older, by the grace of God, I actually understand what he's writing. I'm like, that's pretty cool. When I was younger, I'd be like, this makes no sense. Just the classic, like, at, at youth camp, flip through the Bible, point to place. That's where God wants me to read today, right? It's like, that's not how you should study the Bible. But anyways... For all you students out there, because I know you all do it. I see you at camp under the trees. <laughs> we, should be an, we should submit our lives to be an act of worship to God. And how is this accomplished? Paul tells us, by not conforming to the world, but, be, but by being transformed by the renewal of our minds, which leads to our first point, that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. I don't know if you guys, oh, yes, perfect. It says transformed at the bottom left. That's kind of the, the title of uh, this weekend uh, message. 
And so we're going to read this in that frame of, of this concept of being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Now, how does this happen? How does the renewal of our minds take place? Ultimately, it is done only by the work of the Holy Spirit. Or I should say it is done only through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the reason I say the Holy Spirit is required is because this, kind of, this word renewal is used one other place in all the Greek Bible, in Titus 3.5, it says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that we are saved by what? According to God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this concept of renewal is directly linked to the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so here we see we're talking about being transformed. So we see the tie-in from transformed and the tie-in from renewal of our minds. Both link back to the work of the Spirit. And so how, do, how are we transformed? It's achieved by the renewal of our minds, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as a result of beholding the glory of the Lord. So again, I feel like it's, it's that constant questioning, right? Like, okay, so it's beholding the glory of God. What does that mean? We ask that question, and ultimately it's this. It's to meditate on the Word, to experience God's splendor in creation. Philippians 4.8, uh, we'll read a little bit later. It's about setting our minds on the things of God. And by continuously doing that, our minds are transformed. Now, returning to Romans 12.1 through 2, we see Paul instructs us to be renewed. And so sometimes we might say, well, the Holy Spirit does it, so I don't have to do anything. But Paul instructs us to be renewed. This implies that the renewal of our minds is not solely out of our control, but it's a partnership with the Spirit. The Spirit empowers and emboldens us to transform our minds, but there is still some onus on us to do the things necessary to renew our minds. We must seek after God, striving for this renewal by resisting the world and setting our eyes on the goodness of God. As Paul puts it, we must not be conformed to this world or molded by it. And what is the world? It's the culture, the beliefs, the acceptable practices of the masses in today's age that are in disagreement with the teachings of the Bible. And so we must not be molded by the world We must not be affected by the world, but we must be transformed by the renewal of our minds so we may have discernment to the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect as he finishes in that verse. So my question to you today in response to that, this kind of concept of discernment, do you have discernment for the will of God? Now, we've done some studies with our students in, in regards to this concept of the will of God, but there's really two kind of frames of mind when we talk about the will of God. There's the concept of the, um, the inevitable will of God. The will of God, in God being sovereign, he has, I like to refer to it as God's plan. And God's plan is made perfectly known to us in Scripture in regards to the plan for 
the end when Christ returns. However, up until that point, right, there's some, there's some stuff that happens. And so I always tell students, well, if you want to know what God's plan was, just look at what's happened, right? Just look, in the, just look at history. God, in his perfect, in his perfect sovereignty, has orchestrated the world to play out in a certain way. But there's a second piece to this. There's a second will, and that is, that is the will of God for each one of us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is the will of God for each one of us in our daily lives, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, which will is he talking about here? Well, considering he's talking about discernment, most people would agree, and I believe, that the will of God he's talking about here is the will of God for each one of us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that makes sense because he continues on the rest of the chapter talking about how that happens. Now, how does one discern that? Discern those things? How does one discern what is, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Going back to, again, the Bible. In Romans chapter 2, it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So there's this conscience. And so we don't have enough time today to discuss what the conscience is. However, Romans chapter 2 kind of outlines it as the conscience is, think of a moral compass that is imbued upon all of humanity as a result of being made in the image of God. And so whether you're a Christ follower or not, you have a conscience. God, God put a conscience inside of you. Now, that plays out for everybody differently. You don't have to listen to your conscience, right? I've put my hand in enough cookie jars to know that, right? But our conscience is something that God has given to all. Then we also have prayer. And then finally, the teaching of trusted men, right? In Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 8, as I kind of talked about, when we want to have discernment for the will of God, Philippians 4.8 explains, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So how do we discern the will of God? By setting our minds, renewing our minds, and focusing that on the things of God that are clearly outlined in Scripture. You see, this discernment is achieved by continued focus on the things of the Lord. And I've seen it play out in my own life. I'll be, there'll be times where, you know, I'm not focused on the Lord. And then things just like, you know, your, your heart becomes like heavy. You almost get into sometimes like that state of just like sadness sometimes. Because you're not focused. Your eyes are not on the goodness of God. Your eyes might be pulled to some of the things happening in this world today. Now, now, one example of this, my uh, Pastor Brian hit on this, is what's, what's occurred today in our society, one of the hot-button issues of abortion. Now, I want to be very clear about my stance on abortion without getting too political. Abortion is murder. And again, we're talking about the intentional termination of a viable pregnancy. And so what I mean by that is, if the baby's still kicking, we should not... There, there's no need for abortion. And so when we talk about discernment and conforming to the world, I see it in my own generation, and many people here see it. I know Christians or people that claim to be Christians that say that women deserve the right to choose. 
Well, friends, I would argue that that is conforming to the world. You are conforming to the view of the rest of the world that somehow this life, this beautiful being that God is knitting together in the womb, no longer has value because it's now an inconvenience. And that is, the world, that is what the world argues. It's so easy to, to make the point because if you walk up to somebody and you say, you know what, that woman, she's pregnant, she's looking forward to having her baby, and somebody comes up and mugs her and the baby dies in the womb. And almost every living, breathing human would, argue, would say, that person deserves to be charged with murder. But as soon as the mother is the one that decides that the baby's no longer wanted, or somebody else that's kind of pushing the mother to that, it's no longer needed. And so what happens is you present that argument, and then people kind of backstep, right? And they're like, well, I guess, you know, it doesn't really matter. They're like, what? You just, you just agreed with me. And so my, my point here is this, though, using that, that argument, we continuously see the church being conformed to the world. And Paul is very clear here that we are to not conform to the world, but focus our eyes on the goodness. And when I talk about the goodness of God, what is pure, what is lovely, what is more pure and lovely? As a future father now, seeing my wife be pregnant, what is more pure? I'm going to get emotional, so I need to stop. What is more pure and lovely than a small, innocent baby? And so we must not be conformed, but have discernment for the will of God. And that will is what? To be sanctified, made into the image of Christ, such that we are a living sacrifice. It is the renewal of our mind by the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live in a way that is glorifying to God. Now Paul takes us into verse 3. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned for his in one body we have many members and members do not all have the same function so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness and so Paul kind of moves his argument. So he's talking about the renewal of, of our minds by the Holy Spirit, presenting our lives as living sacrifices, and then he gives a listing of the things that come along with that. And he begins with the discussion of spiritual gifts. Now, before he even like hits the spiritual gifts, right, you see that little warning? And sometimes you like to skip verse 3. I know my, I like to skip verse 3. It says what? To not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. And so that's our next point. Our transformation leads us to humility. Our transformation leads to humility. Paul is giving everybody a gut check here. You see, it's really easy when you're good at something to have an unearned, unearned sense of pride in your abilities. So I said... I. Myself, I always have to go back to this kind of a verse. Singing on the worship team for as long as I have, it's been a blessing. But when you give a kid a mic at the age of like 15 or 14 and he's singing and people are always coming up to him and being like, the worship was great today, it kind of builds a big head. I'm just going to be transparent with everybody. 
And everyone here that knows me is like, yeah, we know, right? (laughs) Dang it. And so I've been given this privilege, right? And I have to continuously push back against the pride that creeps in about how good the worship team sounded or specifically how I was sounding that morning. What I, what I mean is there, there, I must put myself in right relation with God. I need to recognize that I can't sing without the breath that God has given me. I can't teach without the intellect God has given me to be able to read the scripture and be able to present that in a way that people understand it. By the grace of God alone. And I, in my own life, right, for some of you that may not know this, you guys see the lightning bolts on my head, and you think I have just a cool haircut. No, that's not. I'm 25. If I was putting lightning bolts in my head at this point, we'd have some issues. But what that is, is it's a scar, because I was born with a birth defect in which my skull had fused together, and if they hadn't caught it when they did, I would have suffered brain damage. And in fact, to the point when they did it, I'm told, because, you know, I was like six months old, they, they, they basically said, you know, he probably will never play sports. He'll probably, he might need to be in a helmet. He'll have learning disabilities. And by the grace of God alone, I stand before you here today able to read and teach out of the word of God. And that is a gift. And I have to constantly remind myself, like, if it wasn't for God, like, I, I don't know what I'd be like. I'm sure I'd still be a happy guy, but I don't know if I'd be able to teach. And so we must put ourselves in right relation to the one who gives the gifts. And I love that Paul begins with that before he even jumps into the gifts that he, that he discusses in the following verses. Now, in verses 4 through 6, he uses some terminology, or excuse me, uh, in 3 as well. This idea of the measure of faith that God has assigned, that's not in relation. Sometimes people are like, you got to have more faith. That's not what that means. What it means, what it's really referring to is kind of the same, in the same vein as when he talks about according to the grace given to us. It's not about the grace of God being bestowed upon us uh, differently in terms of, the, of a salvation. But ultimately, according to the gifts, in proportion to the gifts that God has given us, we must continuously put ourselves in right relation. And the way I just explain it is this. If you got more gifts, it's way easier to get prideful, right? And so you must continuously put yourself in check. And so our transformation leads to humility. We could spend more time in the specific gifts that Paul outlines here and some of the qualifiers that he puts with them. But for the sake of time, I think, I think the point Paul is making in here is, is more in general this, that our transformation leads us to humble service. And why do I say that? Because before he lists the gifts, he says what? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Use your gifts. So I'm, like, this is one of my things I hit on with the students. It's like, you guys, especially like my older students, like, because I teach, I get a small group of like 11th and 12th graders. I'm like, if you guys are not doing anything for the local body, that's a problem. To this point, I have to ask the congregation as a whole, 
to those of you specifically that sit in, I wrote pews here, but, or chairs in our case, right? I use, when I'm typing out my message, I'm like in that space and like, wait a second, we have chairs. We have pews in the back though, so you guys are not exempt from it, I guess, either. Every week, if you're sitting here every week, every Sunday, my question is this, are you using your gifts for the kingdom of God? Notice I kind of qualified this to say humble service. Now, the term service is used if you read the the gifts out. Service is one of the gifts. What I'm really saying is that all of the gifts that Paul lists here are in service to the kingdom. And so are you using your gifts in service to the kingdom of God? Now, I get it. Our time commitments ebb and flow. It, I'm in that space now. I have a baby on the way. I got a job. I got church. I got all this stuff. So I totally get it when people, I look at people and they're like, ah, oh, this is not a good time right now for me to get plugged into anything. I get, I, I understand the sentiment. And to that I say this. If I looked at you and I said, you should be using your gifts for the kingdom of God, and your initial reaction is anger at me for asking that question or guilt, then I think you have your answer. You, as a Christ follower, should not simply consume the blessings of the local body. We are called to pour back into the body with our gifts. Now, finally, Paul wraps up his letter with what some Bibles subtitle the marks of a true Christian. We begin in verse 9 through 13. We're going to kind of break it up. In verse 9, it says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. When I read that, I always think of in the Gospels when it talks about, like, I think it was Peter and John running to the tomb. He was like, John was the first one there. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. I'm not wrong on that, right, as I'm I'm preaching. That's what the Bible said, right? Okay, I, I got to double check, right? I always think about that, doing one another in honor. It's like, I'm faster than you. Anyways, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so I think this, this chunk can be summarized as this. Our transformation changes our attributes and our personality. Now, some of you were... Some of you might be confused and be like, what do you mean it changes my personality? A lot of the list that Paul provides directly mirrors some of the fruits of the Spirit that we all learned in Sunday school, right? I didn't learn them well enough. I had to write them down. So in Galatians, right, there's love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so Paul kind of reiterates a lot of the fruits of the Spirit you can see directly kind of map back to a lot of what Paul was talking about in these verses. I don't think a lot of these uh, instructions on how to be or the marks of the Christian really need much expounding upon. I think they're fairly straightforward, but the overarching truth is that our transformation by by the Spirit should change who we are. A lot of times, you know, particularly in bad situations, you're talking to somebody and you're like, you know, especially like if you've been hurt by something and you're like, you know, you really hurt me in this. And somebody goes, you know, I'm sorry, but that's just the way I am. No, that is not just the way you are. That's the way you were. 
before Christ. But if you are in Christ, you are called to be more than what you were. You are called to be a new creation. Your personality is not a set truth. And I think we kind of get hung up on that in our society, particularly now in a generation where we just identify as whatever we want that day, right? Well, I mean, we don't have to get into the pronoun thing, but like this concept of like, you know, like my personality is like constantly changing. It's just like who I am day to day. There's no set moral truth. The bottom line is there is a set absolute truth. You were a fallen being, prior to being made new in Christ. And, in, and if you are truly saved, if you have truly submitted your life to Christ, then there are some caveats. There are some things you need to change about yourself. And friends, if you look at me and you're like, I was good before Jesus, but I love Jesus, so I'm a Christian now, then I'm going to tell you, you don't, you don't know Jesus. Because if you know the goodness of Christ, you know how, how depraved you were prior to him being in your life. Your personality is not a set truth. You are not incapable of change. If you believe then that, then what you're really saying is either you do not trust God to empower you to change, or you ultimately do not want to fully submit to him in that piece of your life. Unlike Paul's discussion of the Christian gifts in previous verses, I want everybody to note this, none of these things have qualifiers, in the sense of, he was talking about to the one who serves, right, in their service. In this particular case, he's saying, this is for everybody. So if you're a Christian here today and you're like, I don't like that one, tough cookies. Tough, tough cookies? I don't know if that's a saying. We'll keep going. You have no excuse, right? So the concept, right, so for instance... I know people, and they're just like, I'm rough around the edges. And sometimes people like, like that about themselves. And so they're not hospitable. That's not an excuse. We are to be a people set apart by our actions, by who we are, because we are no longer our own, but our lives are committed to Christ. And we are to be transformed. And that transformation leads us to loving our neighbors, being patient in tribulation, and rejoicing in the hope of Christ's return and the eternal life we have in him. Our transformation changes our attributes and our personality. We continue in verse 14. It says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Also, if just a little asterisk there. If Paul repeats the same word twice... That usually means it's important. Basically, that's true for the whole Bible. But here he, he kind of doubles down. He's like, bless them. And he's like, don't curse them, bless them, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I want to 
make something clear here, this concept of like heaping burning coals on somebody's head, it's not this idea of like, I'm going to hurt them. This concept comes from an ancient like Egyptian cultural thing where ultimately it means to be immensely shamed. So what he's saying here is do like love your enemies to the point where they feel shame for ever being evil towards you. But that leads us to our next point here. Our transformation changes our interactions with others. Paul finishes uh, in verse 21 saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is our responsibility as a Christ follower to overcome evil with good. Now, some read this passage, and I want to be very clear here because I, I do not like this. In, well, it's a false interpretation. Some read this passage and come away as a proponent of pacifism. This idea that we're just never supposed to fight, we should just roll over on our backs. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul actually uses specific qualifiers to negate the idea of pacifism. He says, if possible, and so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Because, friends, we, we see it like all over the world. People try and be peaceful. There's people that just want to fight. And so as far as you are concerned, you are to be a peaceful people, seeking to bring peace in all the things we do. But that doesn't... When we enter the gates of heaven and God asks you why you didn't stand up for biblical truth, if your argument is it was in the name of peace, that's not a sufficient excuse. We are to stand firm in biblical truth. Seeking after peace in all that we do. Returning to the example of abortion discussed previously. It's clear that children are being murdered. It's clear that this is abhorrent to God. God just, I'm, it is depressing in a sense to think about how God must view our nation in this time. Understanding God's sovereignty, he knew all that was going to take place. But Romans 12 is not instructing us to allow this to take place, to just roll over. What is it, it is instructing us to do is maintain peace in these discussions where possible. Love and have compassion for the lost, for the enemy across the aisle. But most importantly, to overcome the evil of abortion with goodness, right? What kinds of goodness? Adoption, fostering, generosity, evangelism. And when I talk about evangelism, specifically to the, <clears throat> to the women that are lost, right? There's a reason that they, need the, that they desire these abortions across the board. And we should be willing to meet them and have those discussions and help them as believers. Because if we don't put our money where our mouth is, friends, this is where, like, where we're at today. As I look at the course of history, where we're at today, the church is ultimately to blame. Because we have not done good enough, done our due diligence when it comes to standing firm in biblical truth while supporting those in need. The government stepped in where the church backed away. I'm not going to get political, but 
We as a church are called to be transformed. We should show the love of Christ to all involved, not just the unborn child, but the unborn child, the scared mothers, the broken families, all the people that need that love. So in conclusion, we are transformed in the renewal of our minds by the power of the Spirit. This transformation leads to humility and humble service. It changes our personality and our attributes and ultimately changes how we interact with both our friends and our enemies. And so as we close today, looking at this kind of scorecard that Paul has outlined here, I ask the question, have you been transformed? Some here claim to be transformed when you look at your life in comparison to Paul's teaching It may not line up all the way or in any way. If that is the case, we must ask ourselves, have we truly submitted our lives to Christ? Now, I'm not saying it's an immediate transformation by any means. I myself don't fit the bill. It's a continuous sanctification, a continuous uh, renewal that must take place as we are conformed to the image of Christ. And ultimately, we're never going to, the plight of the Christian is that we'll never succeed. We will never be as good as Jesus, but we strive nonetheless because that is what we are called to do. Our spiritual walk is a marathon, not a sprint. Perhaps today, you look at this list and you say, you know what? I really am struggling with this person at work. And you view them as an enemy. But through prayer, meditation on the word, and, and, and fellow believers kind of coming together and, and, and talking about these issues, over time the Spirit will empower you to continue to transform into the image of Christ and deal with that, that situation. I encourage you all as we, as we leave this morning to look back at these verses over the next, honestly, all the time, but to look at it potentially this week. And I, I, I encourage you to look through the list of the marks of a Christian and the gifts and to pick one. Because sometimes it's hard. When you look at this, sometimes it's like, I don't do any of these, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, i got to change everything. Well, if you want to try that, go for it. But I encourage you to just pick one that you know is a problem in your life. And pick that one. Pray about it. Meditate on it. Go to your fellow Christ followers and say, listen, I need prayer because I struggle in this area and I want to be more like Jesus. And on student weekend, it's a perfect time to point out, right? We have tons of students in here. As a youth leader, I don't have the time to be, I try to mentor them in the best way I can, but I don't have the time to build one-on-one intentional relationships in the way that I would like with all of them. I have a full-time job outside of the church, right? And so, like, I encourage you. I lean on you. First, first the family should be discipling, but ultimately I lean, the, the fellowship of believers here, I lean on you to look at the students and to mentor them in this transformation and to lean on each other in your own transformation. So with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. I just ask that your word would resonate inside us, that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, Father, by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray for people here this morning that might not know you, that might not 
understand this transformation, that they see the goodness of it and that they seek after it, Father, that you would enlighten their hearts to see the truth of the goodness of the Christian life and the, and the wonderful impact that Christ has on us and ultimately, Father, that they would see their depravity and they would seek their Savior through your enlightenment in their hearts. I pray for us as we go out this week that we would all look to Romans 12 and we would, we would find something in it in which we find is lacking in our own hearts, in our own lives, and that we would seek to glorify and honor you and transform such that we can be a light to the people of this world that desperately need it in this time. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.